Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. Auspicious interbeing to you and yours, my friends, and Coinos Hermes. Today we're going to talk about our dirty little secret, and not just any old secret, but the deepest, darkest, dirtiest secret. The secret of our stress, strain, trauma, anxiety, depression, imposter syndrome, burnout, and loneliness. It's everywhere. Because the self-help industrial complex is humming. And we should begin by acknowledging that the self-help industrial complex is a lot bigger than you might think. Estimates vary. But we're talking about a projected $13.2 billion in 2023, and that's looking very narrowly. In terms of revenue, self-help does better than Major League Baseball, and is darn close to the NFL. But we really need to look at it more broadly. For instance, consider psychedelics alone, which is not accounted for in that figure, which seems strange to me because that's one of the main reasons people use psychedelics. It's not the only reason. Of course, sometimes it's sheer existential confusion or seeking entertainment. But in 2022, the psychedelics industry by itself was valued at $4.8 billion, and it's projected to exceed $11 billion before the end of the decade. And in most places, it's still illegal. On top of that, we haven't even touched all the coaching, consulting, and training in the business world that effectively amounts to self-help, and we'll circle back to that again. Yoga is reasonably considered part of the self-help industrial complex, and it alone is worth upwards of $30 billion a year. The wellness industry, more generally and broadly considered, is part of the self-help industrial complex. And in the U.S. alone, it may exceed $1.2 trillion in 2023, and almost four times that much globally. It's larger than the global tobacco industry. The self-help industrial complex knows we suffer. And while in some ways it tries to help, and I think there's a lot of sincere effort to help, in other ways it's still an industry, and the people working in it are ultimately vehicles of a larger industry. And as an industry, it tries to suck us in, tries to get us to resolve our suffering by means of its peculiar methods which may seem varied, but far too often they boil down to more and more and more of the same, cleverly disguised as the next big thing. The latest twist on the next big thing is, of course, the claims of evidence-based and scientifically grounded self-help programs that's becoming increasingly popular. Now, as I mentioned before, self-help naturally brings to mind certain things, and maybe not others. We might think of books and programs for dealing with stress and trauma, depression, anxiety, and so on. You've seen them on your favorite website, and you've seen the audio programs, and you've seen things advertised on YouTube. It's all over the place. 
But under the rubric of self-help, it's very important that we include much of what gets sold and promoted on platforms all over the internet and social media under the guise, really, of business. And that includes people working from sales all the way up to C-suite. Those are the targets for a lot of these programs. It also includes a whole range of people who might be seeking a way out of some kind of structured job, say, working for somebody else and trying in some way to be working for themselves. Self-employed, starting a business of some kind. And so there's a lot of this sort of self-help directed toward that community. Countless thought leaders, and we, we should put that in quotes, thought leaders, countless thought leaders of the business realm in particular, we, we don't see them as self-help gurus, but that's what they amount to. And they offer a variety of self-help programs geared to executives, entrepreneurs, corporations, organizations, and it's all part of the self-help catastrophe, no matter how no-nonsense, evidence-based, and bottom-line business sense it sounds, or how vulnerable, brave, and spiritual it sounds, because there's everything you want across the spectrum. There are plenty of people arguing for things that seem very hard-nosed, and then plenty of people arguing for things that seem very spiritual and vulnerable and soft. In so many of its forms, the self-help catastrophe says the following. Now, sometimes the language masks the deeper message, but here's what the deeper message is. It says to us, you suffer as you do because you want to win this game. Follow these tips and tricks, and you will finally succeed. And then you will feel happy. We can take you from zero to dangerous, from broke to badass, from quiet desperation to financial independence, from burned out to reinvigorated, from full-on sloth to 10x productive, from self-doubt to self-confidence the self-confidence of your inner sage who braves the wilderness and dares to lead. You can have it all, and we have the secret you long for. That's the message that we get. Again, not always in that language. Sometimes a little of that language is in there. But our real secret, the soul's dark secret, is that we don't want to play this game. Our inner dignity and wisdom rejects the whole game, the whole swindle, because the better angels of our nature know it won't ever make us truly happy, truly at one with our fullest potentials and with the sacred mystery itself. That's really what it comes down to. The game is unhealthy, it's wearing out our world, the world we long to love, and it's wearing us out too. And when we experience it wearing out our world, wearing out our heart, mind, and body, wearing out the bodies, minds, and hearts of our fellow beings, our soul hungers for truly wise people to come forward and say, there are major problems with this game we've all been playing. It does not accord with wisdom, love, and beauty. 
it does not accord with sacredness and with reverence for life. And it keeps us out of attunement with spiritual and ecological realities. Let's talk about how to stop the insanity. Let's talk about how to heal ourselves and the world at the same time. Because we can do all we want to adapt to our suffering. But we can't truly heal until we transform the causes of our suffering. We long to hear this because the soul has begun to groan and even to get feisty in reaction to the bit and bridle of the deranged rider who tries to gallop us into oblivion. We want to free ourselves from the burdens of ignorance and walk a noble path of wisdom and wildness. We want to sleep again, dream again, dream bigger and better. Not merely to dream for ourselves, but to dream the whole world onward, tapping into sacred powers and inconceivable causes that have no real place in our contemporary context. We want to return ourselves to nature's rhythms, which operate at a radically different frequency than the noisy pace of so-called progress. We want time for real connection, not substitute connections on social media, but time in true togetherness, time for laughing together, creating together, appreciating together, thinking together. Not the false thinking of abstractions and commercializations, but the thinking of life. We want unstructured time in nature and in nurture. And we want meaningful work, truly meaningful work that we don't have to rationalize. We're done with having to act like a team player in a meaningless sport that degrades the conditions of life as it degrades the human spirit. We are weary from work that breaks down our bodies and minds as it breaks down the wider ecologies we depend on. And the work our soul calls us to, the real work of our life, at a simultaneously cosmic and community scale, that work only gets constrained by the pattern of insanity that covers over what we are, covers over the mystery and magic of life. The terrors and wonders of the holism of the universe get pushed away by busyness and the constant barrage of fear and craving that constitute our political and economic shackles. Instead of telling us what we need to hear, what our souls long to hear, the purveyors of self-help chant to us, Hey there, look over here. We belong to the fill-in-your-favorite-neurobabble-or-marketing-catchphrase research institute. We research theory F, and F is for flow and financial freedom. Or they say, we teach process X. And the X is for an extraordinary method for arriving at disruptive insight and moving you and your business forward. Watch our TED Talk and then schedule a free strategy session.
Now, this sort of thing can unfold in variously nuanced ways. Sure, there's a little bit of caricature here, a little bit of dramatic effect to pull out the essence of what's going on in this larger self-help catastrophe, in this self-help industrial complex. As just one example, someone might experience imposter syndrome. That's a common phrase these days. And the self-help catastrophe will tell them, don't worry. It's because you need to learn to trust yourself. It's also because you come from a group that has been silenced and made to feel inadequate. But we can fix that. We will help you get rid of that imposter syndrome. And I'm using this example because it actually came up very recently in a dialogue with someone. And I pointed out that if Socrates were alive today and one of us went to him and said, Socrates, I feel like an imposter. I think I have imposter syndrome. Socrates might reply, That's very good news. Something in you realizes you lack true wisdom and it wants you to slow down. Anyone who acts like they know what they're doing in this incredibly complex and sacred world of ours is full of themselves. It's not because you were marginalized that you now feel imposter syndrome, but rather you were marginalized because of your sensitivity to all the imposters out there, forcing their agendas on the world. Slow down. Trust that feeling of humility. Let it come through And let's find out what we can learn from it and how we can heal self and world together. Let's walk the path of wisdom, love, and beauty together and enter the heart of wonder. If we went to Socrates and said, Socrates, you know, I feel burned out, anxious, depressed. Socrates would say, that's very good news. Something in you doesn't want to play this game. Slow down. Take care of your soul and attend to the sacredness of this world. Let the teachings of wisdom, love, and beauty help you to turn away from all this craziness. The great mystery awaits us, and we shouldn't waste a single moment of our lives. But here, too, the purveyors of self-help do basically the opposite. And instead of helping us end the game, they try to convince us that we only need to get better at playing the game. They tell us we have internal hang-ups rather than inquiring into the systemic problems that go completely together with all our psychophysical and utterly philosophical symptoms. You see, it's instead of saying to the person who says, I feel anxious, depressed, and burned out. The self-help catastrophe says to them, well, let's fix that. You have internal hang-ups. There's something inside you, and we can fix it. We can teach you vagus nerve mastery. We'll teach you box breathing. We'll teach you whatever it is. And there's a whole warehouse full of toolkits. And another 50,000 warehouses full of tools to throw into those toolkits. And that's what you get offered. The problem is localized in you and not in the system. 
There's not even a real effort made to put the two together to see how our problems go together with insanity in larger systems. And now this is not a personal attack on anyone. A lot of people playing this game have very good intentions, at times delightful intentions. One of the things we have to remind ourselves is that really good people with really good intentions can do bad things. At the very least, really good people with really good intentions can do unhelpful things, but actually they can do bad things. And we need to challenge certain ideas and open up a debate and a dialogue, really, when somebody puts their work, their ideas, their agendas out there into the public sphere. And these people's work is definitely out in public. It's hard to avoid. I'm sure you've been targeted with ads on social media. Maybe not. But it is pretty hard to avoid. And especially if you're listening to a podcast about philosophy, about love wisdom, then you may be the kind of person the self-help industrial complex targets. Because you might be very serious and intelligent and committed to spiritual things, but Google doesn't know the difference between you and anybody else who's looking up things about wisdom, love, beauty, culture, psychedelics, all the topics that we've talked about. They can be handled in different ways. They can be handled wisely, and they can also be handled in ways that feed into the self-help industrial complex and the self-help catastrophe. So these ideas... They're hard to avoid, but so is our secret. In some sense, paradoxically, our secret is impossible to avoid. And yet for some of us, nearly impossible to see. Hence, it's darkness. That's why we're calling this the deepest, darkest secret. But this secret only seems dark and dirty because we've pushed it into the shadow, into the unconscious. Now, maybe you haven't. Maybe you think it is conscious, but maybe some of it is still unconscious. Or maybe not. Who knows? Maybe this doesn't apply to you, but at least we can reflect on it together. Because it applies, at the very least, on a cultural scale. And it applies to far more of us than we may feel comfortable, at least in a partial way. That there are elements of this secret in our unconscious. We're not allowed to say we don't like the system. And in fact, we take it as a sign of intelligence when someone endorses the system we have or tells us, oh, it's the worst possible system except for all the others. We think them very clever. They often at least think themselves very clever in saying that. And yet it makes no real sense. We cannot heal if we don't stop doing the things that cause suffering. And we cannot experience the most profound and transformative insights if we don't stop manufacturing ignorance. The dominant narratives make it challenging to see the causes of our suffering and the nature of our ignorance. And in some cases, those narratives actually obscure our suffering and our ignorance. Now, as we've already touched on a little, we don't clearly see, usually, 
we don't clearly see our anxiety, depression, loneliness, burnout, and so on as having causal roots in the larger system. Some people do. Some people do in some ways, but not in others. And in fact, it happens in lots of different ways. But even our science tells us that a materialistic culture and the pursuit of material wealth makes us less happy and goes together with all manner of problems. Tim Kessler's done excellent, excellent work in this regard, but there's, it's not just him, there's other work as well. And the same goes for many diseases. We don't often enough see our cancer, heart disease, alcoholism, device addiction, and so on as having causal roots in the larger system. We tend to say, I have cancer, I'm an alcoholic, whatever it might be, and usually we don't say this system, this system that we all perpetuate has gotten really good at creating cancer, anxiety, addiction, depression, trauma, burnout, and aggression. And the system we're talking about, why does it do it? Well, because it will actively seek profit everywhere. Even in places, a sense of sacredness or a semblance of wisdom would keep us from sticking our narrow agendas. And so the system constantly invents interventions and extractions that become money. And at least all sorts of weird things, not least of which the ones that we've just mentioned, that it gets really good at producing problems. And some of the problems feel strange to even state. For instance, we don't eat what nature provides. Rather, now we eat what capitalism provides, even if we shouldn't call it food. If degrading ecologies, creating disease-inducing junk food, or intervening in the genetics of plants and animals means profit then this system will do it. If degrading the conditions of life we depend on to live will create profit, the system will do that. That's really a remarkable level of insanity. And in a similar fashion, what all this means is that we don't tend to get exposure to wisdom, love, and beauty, but instead get exposure to the fragmented and degraded forms of these that the marketplace will allow. At times, the situation appears tragic in its irony. We will pave over some wonderful, wild place. Just pave it over. And then the people living there will go to airports which were also formerly wild, wonderful places, in order to fly somewhere far away to look at nature or to take a psychedelic or a yoga retreat. Now, we should also emphasize that what we refer to as science goes fully together with these reflections, in part because now we're having an evidence-based self-help industrial complex that's growing and growing, but we really need to see science, technology, politics, and economics all go together with the degradation of our ecologies and the limitation of our potentials, even though self-help ironically seems to 
offer itself as liberating our potentials. And so science, technology, politics, and economics create a context in which we don't fully sense and understand the suffering that comes from our disconnection from spiritual and ecological realities, which includes the loss of species, the degradation of landscapes, and breakdown of the ecologies we depend on. When we get out of balance, that that state of being out of balance becomes the framework for all our thinking, which means all our thinking has a certain lack of attunement with reality. It's part of a fundamental philosophical error, which we could call the error of context. Failing to understand that everything is going to have a meaning dependent on context. The context of the dominant culture is a context of disconnection from wisdom, love, and beauty, including disconnection from nature. And that context presents us with a story that we have two and only two options. We either accept the political, economic, scientific, and technological system we have, or we must consign ourselves to insanity, which is usually likened to Stalin or Mao or some kind of chaos like that. You see, it's either this or, wait, you're criticizing the system we have, then you're going to send us right into Stalinism. And this makes it impossible for us to criticize the insanity of the system we have and to think wisely, compassionately, and creatively together so we can arrive at far more vitalizing alternatives. We take this in en masse. It becomes part of our psychological and philosophical milieu, the water we swim in, the soil we grow in, and thus it becomes off-limits to critique the pattern of insanity and to confront the scary questions we need to confront about what we might have to renounce in order to help the whole world heal, ourselves included. Doing that, making that critique, acknowledging our deepest, darkest secret can feel to many of us, like speaking the name Voldemort, recognizing his evil presence in the world and contemplating all we might have to endure to rid ourselves of that evil. Many of the most new-agey self-help gurus who otherwise say all sorts of warm and fuzzy and metaphysical things fail to question and may even actively embrace the system we have. They may tell us that they too once had their doubts about capitalism and money, but after rifling through the Akashic records and consulting with their spirit guides from the Pleiades, or even consulting with the divine, they now understand that they secretly hated rich people, And they secretly believe they didn't deserve money. But now they adore rich people and they have abundant self-love. And they understand that money 
is just energy, and to master it, we only need to raise our vibrational frequency. The more frightening truth is that rejecting the pattern of insanity somehow seems like a greater sin than many other things we might find in our shadow. The only thing bigger than science in our culture is capitalism. And so the only sin bigger than being woo-woo is being a rebel against the economic system. Which has nothing to do with hating rich people, by the way. It's a ridiculous thing that gets thrown in there for some weird reason. Don't have to hate anybody. In fact, we could just want the end of hatred. We could want the end of injustice. And that could be our very reason for questioning the economic system that we have. We may not want to have anything at all violent, aggressive, or undemocratic. In fact, wanting democracy could be the reason that we question the system we have. Just that alone. And many of the people who like many things that our science considers woo-woo also like things capitalism sees as wonderful, like flying thousands of miles to conduct or attend self-help programs, and in general spending and trying to make as much money as possible. And I usually have to say this often in discussions of this kind, I am not saying that people should not have their material security. There's no reason why what we're talking about means that you yourself should be deprived in your life or should suffer or that someone should be harmed in the name of trying to create a better system. There's no need for any of that. We're talking about just thinking critically and trying to understand that rejecting the dominant culture's central game amounts to an incredible taboo, one that we imagine comes with a scarlet letter of ignorance, since only fools would suggest we have an ethical obligation to come up with something better than the pattern of insanity that has us all in its grips. And so our deepest, darkest secret stays way down in the shadow with an aura of the forbidden. We suffer and the world hangs by a thread. To understand how the deepest, darkest secret of our anxiety, depression, stress, strain, trauma, and so on gets manipulated by purveyors of self-help both inside and outside of the business world, we can look with a little care at the self-help catastrophe in general so as to arrive at some insight into its nature. I think this is useful. And there's a, there's a parallel here that we're, we're going to draw that may help. Now, a lot of the self-help industrial complex has essentially applied the logic of capitalism, which we can think of as the dominant form of conquest consciousness. It has applied the logic of capitalism to the wisdom traditions and the discoveries of those traditions. And now, in a way, it's doing that with science. And so that's what's interesting, I think. That's one of the things that's so interesting about it. The process echoes the division of labor lauded by Adam Smith. 
But in this case, it arises as a division of wisdom. So capitalism in general has a division of labor, and the self-help industrial complex has a division of wisdom. It breaks up holistic wisdom into fragments that purveyors of self-help in all its forms can master, package, and sell us as tools, tactics, and trainings for our eager consumption. Fragments they can brand as new, innovative, visionary, disruptive, and so on. Because they offer fragments of wisdom, something in the fragments makes sense and even seems right and has an efficacy in our lives. Because wisdom is powerful. Wisdom is what works. You give somebody a fragment of wisdom and that fragment can get traction. But as fragments the fragments will inevitably perpetuate and even deepen our problems at personal and planetary scales. That's the kind of tragic irony there. Conquest consciousness breaks everything into pieces. In the division of labor, we take a task that would require extensive skill and break it into parts that require little to no skill at all in practical terms. Consider the example of, of making a car. Now, if you look at the whole process of making a car, you might not find a single person in the entire process who could actually build a car from scratch. In fact, I, I don't think that exists. No one possesses the holistic knowledge and skill needed to make a car from the extraction of the raw materials through the creation of all the components to the final assembly of a working vehicle but rather each person has only some fragment or fragments of that knowledge and skill. You might have a lot of them. But to actually do the whole thing, no one person is doing that, and it would take an extraordinary amount of effort for one person to do that. It would be impractical in terms of the actual functioning of the economy the way we have it now. In the self-help catastrophe, the wisdom traditions get fractured into pieces such that no one selling self-help in its typical forms has the holistic wisdom we need to live well together in a way that furthers the conditions of life itself. Rather, the purveyors of self-help find fragments with powerful relative effects because, again, wisdom is what works. Fragments of wisdom only work in fragmented ways, and that's why they create unintended negative side effects that we may or may not easily notice. They can go without our notice for sometimes a long time. Now, this doesn't happen in a malicious way in most cases. Again, I'm not attacking anybody personally, it is not to say that everybody in the self-help industrial complex is actively trying to dupe you and has some evil or malicious intent. Often precisely the opposite. It happens with the kind of best intentions that pave the way to perdition. In this process, the purveyors of self-help extract the fragments, usually from the collective psyche, because in so many cases the people purveying the self-help haven't studied the wisdom traditions. They have no direct intensive study and practice in a holistic and long-standing lineage. And then they use the extracted material to produce self-help products. 
Extraction from the collective psyche often feels in a functional way like a discovery on the part of the purveyor of self-help. They may really think they've discovered something, even though anyone with familiarity with the wisdom traditions will know that they didn't really invent something. It would be as if I sincerely thought I had invented the wheel. I sincerely spent weeks and months and years and came out and said, I have invented this thing. And it could be that the wheel I invented is, in fact, not a particularly good wheel. Maybe my wheel is a wheel that is fixed onto the axle so that the whole axle and wheels have to rotate together rather than being free, and so it's really limited in in its functioning. But I may really believe that I discovered it. In the self-help industrial complex, that these seeming discoveries or innovations or ideas in their more holistic form, we will be able to see that they've been around for centuries, in some cases millennia. The division of wisdom then gets packaged as things that sound new, insightful, and exciting. The subtle art of not caring too much. How to start with why. Overcoming our inner saboteur, following the five-second rule, the art of doing nothing, the master key to achieving flow states, mindset magic, vagus nerve manipulation, the value of vulnerability. And we could list countless tools from the bottomless toolkit of capitalistic patterns of thought. And as we mentioned before, a a recent kind of innovation is to make these claims as evidence-based, to suggest that we have an evidence base, and even to establish some research institute in some cases, or to have the information coming out of some lab somewhere. And that shows us, again, the ways science and technology go together with our current insanity. I am not calling for a rejection of science and technology altogether or any villainization of scientists or even capitalists or any self-help purveyor. It's just that we need to see clearly the ways that what we now refer to, for instance, as science, how that empowers, perpetuates, and keeps us trapped in a pattern of insanity in far too many cases. And it doesn't help in our situation that economics presents itself as a science and shares with physics the same kinds of metaphysical speculations presented as fact. Science gets used to keep the pattern of insanity going. And science also gets used to develop self-help programs that keep us all entangled in that pattern of insanity. The thing is wearing us out, and then you've got to have a program that is evidence-based so that you'll keep going in the program. Going in the pattern of insanity. You see, that's what it's for. The pattern makes you feel awful, then the program from the pattern helps you to keep going along with the pattern that caused you the problem to begin with. This does not mean that all science is bad or evil, just that we need to see clearly And the ways we now use science for self-help will not reliably provide what we need 
and what the world needs. The practices and the metaphysical assumptions of science currently limit us and give us the semblance of power rather than liberating our true power. Taken together, our science, technology, politics, and economics lead us to create these programs of self-help because of the very problems they created for us in the first place. That's part of the con job. Now, whether they derive directly from science or not, the various programs of self-help contain fragments of wisdom. That's important to recognize that these are fragments. It's why they sometimes feel compelling. And by self-help programs, that too, I want to remind us that we mean something broad. It includes a leadership program, sales training, consulting and coaching that you might get how you can become successful, how you can make five figures in a month or six figures in a month. And the fragments of wisdom in there allow the self-help programs to achieve sometimes good results, what seem like good results from the perspective of the pattern of insanity itself. But those results exclude the holistic perspective that would reveal their incoherence and their redundance. The classical capitalistic division of labor depends on breaking up wisdom and breaking up nature too. So when we're talking about the self-help catastrophe, yes, there's a breaking up of, of wisdom and a division of nature. There is there too. They're in both. And so the self-help catastrophe, which is ultimately another vehicle of capitalism, applies this logic of breaking apart wisdom, breaking apart nature, fragmenting, extracting. It applies that logic to the human soul and the soul of the world. In a deep sense, the basic gesture of self-help is the same as in capitalism, which is the fragmentation of life, which tends to include extraction from life and often for the sake of increasing profits. And that's in two senses, that one, the program you're being sold might be to help you make more money, but even if it isn't, even if it's just to feel better, the program you're being sold is a money-making enterprise. Now, it's not to say money itself somehow has to be a problem, it's that in the system we have, it has a meaning that we can't control. And our considerations here have nothing to do with promoting some kind of socialist agenda. The point is that we cannot avoid raising the central incoherencies of what we refer to as capitalism. We can't avoid acknowledging its incoherence. And we also can't avoid acknowledging that capitalism itself has never promised us wisdom. It can't make that promise. Playing the money game means ignoring that fact and ignoring the ridiculousness of trying to pursue genuine happiness and well-being for self and world without a foundation of wisdom, love, and beauty. In other words, the soul itself naturally rejects capitalism. It does so not because our souls are communist, but because capitalism keeps us out of attunement with spiritual and ecological realities. 
The soul wants wisdom. Capitalism can't ever deliver it. The soul wants true well-being. Capitalism cannot deliver that. The soul wants wiser alternatives. And it knows we have the creativity and intelligence to develop them. The self-help catastrophe, on the other hand, shrugs its shoulders and tries as slickly as it can to get us to double down on the ignorance we know rather than leap toward the unknown wisdom, love, and beauty. We can scarcely fool the soul with notions like a triple bottom line. Spiritual and ecological realities don't deal in bottom lines, but in cycles, circles, curves, fractals, discontinuities, and total interwovenness. Our own souls and the soul of the world know that capitalism must have profit above all else, and thus, conscious capitalism in all its forms amounts to oxymorons and rationalizations. That phrase, conscious capitalism, contradiction in terms, unless we just mean, I'm aware that I'm doing it. But we are not aware in the sense that Jesus meant, right, when he said they know not what they do. They knew what they were doing, but they didn't know what they were doing. In capitalism, conquest consciousness pursues its extractions from beings and ecologies quite exclusively for the sake of profits. And because we now live in an artificial ecology of money, many self-help approaches do quite a lot of rationalizing so that they too can focus on making money, especially by helping us make money. So it's free. There's a rationalization there at both levels. Again, if it's just either you get to make money while the purveyor of self-help makes money or just they get to make money and maybe they make you feel better, or whatever it might be. But usually there's something about getting us more plugged into the system that we have. So somehow or other, our material stability is being put into play. And the self-help industrial complex, as a vehicle of capitalism, is itself then a capitalistic endeavor. Its aim as an industry has nothing to do with furthering the conditions of life and bringing genuine liberation to the human soul. Rather, it has the same single aim as any other pattern of capitalistic thought, and that's profit. And as with any capitalist enterprise, this actively alienates us from ourselves, from each other, and from the world we share. Now, the way this works seems so often the same at a base level that I think we can become nauseated by the mindless repetition if we don't ignore it, if we don't miss it. Because on the surface, we can seemingly find, I think, an endless display of little novelties vying for our attention as breakthroughs or secret, secret formulas, and sometimes they even seem contradictory. You should do this. Oh, never do that. Why bother doing this? You could do this. And it seems sometimes that we do find differences on the surface. When we look underneath, it sometimes seems so similar that, again, it's, it's dizzying. We see people trying, 
again and again to give us hacks. Often that's what it comes down to, hacks, which they claim will help us overcome our anxiety, our depression, our boredom, our loneliness, our self-doubt, our lack of productivity. They offer us atomic habits to overcome the friction, tension, and heaviness in our lives and techniques to address our experience of stress, strain, trauma, weariness, busyness, and a lack of deeper meaning and purpose. And often they want to make us rich. It's not the only goal of the self-help catastrophe, but it's a common one, and I would be remiss in not emphasizing it because it's there again and again and again. How many programs are there to make money? To attract money? To become abundant? And that is integral to our cultural context. It's all operating in this ecology of money. The more a culture gets hooked by money, the more people in it need money. Not because it will make us happy in any meaningful sense, but because in such a culture, the lack of money can bring a great deal of misery. And that's really important to recognize. Just in recognizing that, we are recognizing a clear indication of the unhealthy nature of the dominant culture. In the dominant culture, a lack of money can contribute significantly to stress, strain, and day-to-day suffering. A culture that has made the world in such a way that money can solve a lot of problems, a culture in which money can make life easier and more enjoyable for some and more miserable for others. Such a culture has lost its way and cannot long endure. When we see a culture like that, we see a vast ecology of suffering. And that suffering may not always look like suffering. The wealthy may seem happy. But mainly because the culture has arranged the lives of its citizens in such a way that money can purchase a buffer that protects the wealthy from a significant level of struggle and strife while providing entertainment, excitement, and prestige. We are impressed with people just because they're super wealthy. We listen to Elon Musk because he's a multi-billionaire, not because he's wise, not because he's particularly compassionate, not because he understands how spiritual and ecological realities function. Just because he's rich. And so the way that the culture is arranged doesn't change the fact that these same privileged people lack the fuller happiness and liberation promised by the wisdom traditions of the world. And it doesn't change the fact that the overall ecology produces suffering rather than nourishing the conditions of life, because that's not what, say, Elon Musk does. For a living. He doesn't nourish the conditions of all our lives. And we look at him with a sort of anemic understanding of freedom. Freedom is I can buy whatever I want, I can do whatever I want. The meaning of freedom that we would see in Elon Musk is completely disconnected from any meaning of freedom in the venerable wisdom traditions of the world. 
So we're not seeing true freedom. We're not seeing true wisdom. We're not seeing true compassion. We're not seeing somebody who knows how to take care of the conditions of life that we actually depend on. So there's, there are realities we need to be in attunement with. We don't see that attunement in our wealthy, and still we project some kind of understanding onto them. And the self-help industrial complex bursts into the midst of our various forms of suffering. And its purveyors entice us with all manner of solutions for our suffering, many of which they claim are based in science or were used to train Navy SEALs or are featured in famous business platforms. It all sounds convincing and it feels alluring. If we look at these solutions with an eye of discernment, we find at least two regular tendencies. And we've touched on them already, and we can now lay them out maybe a little bit more clearly. First, none of them addresses the fact that the system itself has created much of our misery and has put the conditions of life as we know it at existential risk. The self-help solutions focus on us, sometimes very overtly putting the onus on us, to accept the system, give in to its demands, and take responsibility for our lives in the most limited sense. That is a sense of responsibility that ultimately lacks wisdom, compassion, and grace. The wisdom traditions want us to take responsibility for our lives. They just do it in a way that includes wisdom, compassion, and grace. We find limited tolerance of any critical thinking about ethics, metaphysics, aesthetics, and so on of the larger system. We find limited tolerance of any critical thinking about the role that the larger system plays in producing suffering in the world. Accordingly, the purveyors of self-help tell us we have no one to blame for our lack of success, which we should put in quotes, no one to blame but ourselves. Even if accepting that story means we must participate in a system that has proven itself exceptionally good at causing large-scale problems. So that's the first issue. The system created a lot of problems. It perpetuates suffering for us. We don't look at it. We're not allowed to look at it. That's part of the self-help catastrophe. Secondly, every single one of the proposed solutions from the purveyors of self-help has a clear, direct, and far more holistic expression in the wisdom traditions. I can't think of an exception. Maybe there are limited exceptions. But generally speaking, we're not finding anything truly new. People will say it's revolutionary, it's different, nothing that big of a deal. If we find anything seemingly new, we will also tend to find it far more anemic and fragmented than the version of it we could receive from the wisdom traditions themselves. And sadly, this critique applies to a good bit of psychotherapy as well. And that's a very good case of a group of people who do not have malicious intent. Your therapist teaching you vagus nerve mastery is not there to harm you. But that is still a fragmented approach to well-being that doesn't seem to... I've never heard Stephen Porges question the larger system. Maybe he does. It's not that I've read everything or seen everything. It's just that's not front and center. And I don't know if that conversation ever even happens. 
It's just that here's the toolbox. Here's the vagus nerve mastery. Listen to me. You can do this. Here it is. And now get back to work. And secondly, when you look at the self-regulation process that's engaged there, it's all well and good to have a story about the vagus nerve, but that's anemic compared to the holistic practices that you would find in the wisdom traditions, which can get the same end goal. In fact, people trained in the more holistic versions can do things that vagus nerve people can't even dream of. It's not even on their radar as a human possibility. And so when you're starving and someone throws you a a, a cracker, it's incredible. And it might save your life to have a slice of lemon if you're severely malnourished. But that doesn't mean you've been nourished in the holistic sense. You're still malnourished. Maybe your symptoms of scurvy went away, but you might have a dozen other problems. And so it's really strange. Many of our thought leaders will act like we modern people have discovered all these things by ourselves. And many purveyors of self-help will claim to have put in years of effort researching, studying human behavior, attending workshops, spending time in nature. And there are a lot of these things are kind of unreliable gestures that they've spent years. We have no idea what that looks like. What, what were they doing? But even if the research in question happened in a university setting it still leaves us with fragmentation because fragmentation is characteristic of science itself. It's characteristic of the whole of the dominant culture. We find it everywhere. Our scientists are analysts, not sages. They seek knowledge, not wisdom, compassion, and grace, not as their job. The job of a scientist is knowledge. Sure, it might be knowledge about compassion, but it's not that they were seeking compassion. And the reason they're researching compassion is probably because the wisdom traditions told them it was possible. Few, if any, purveyors of self-help acknowledge the wisdom traditions in any compelling way. Fewer still actually study those traditions with sufficient sensitivity to their wholeness or with any evidence of comprehensive understanding. But that's the point, you see. If I'm If I'm using a division of wisdom, which is akin to a division of labor, I don't understand the whole of wisdom. I have a piece of it that I can master. It's very easy to teach mindset hacks. You can watch a 20-minute YouTube video and you've got it. And you can then go explain mindset hacking to somebody else. That is very different than studying that same concept in a holistic ecology. And it's there. It's not a new idea. And that's why when we apply discernment, we usually will find a lack of holistic wisdom in a lot of these figures. They do ooze confidence, though. Many of them seem convinced that they have the answers we need. And again, often with seemingly positive intentions that are likely sincere in so many cases, and they probably have helped people turn their lives around. But the whole game serves to conveniently cut us off from the holistic wisdom traditions. And the convenience here goes not to us, but to the pattern of insanity that gave us all our symptoms in the first place. 
And then the convenience also goes to the purveyors of self-help because they can more easily teach hacks, techniques, tools, rather than teaching real wisdom, love, and beauty. That's not an easy thing to do. And it's a big karmic burden. Well, it's a big karmic burden either way because if we teach the fragments and we're perpetuating the pattern of insanity, we're really taking on a bigger karmic responsibility than we realize. And what this means is the self-help industrial complex takes powerful practices, powerful medicines that belong to the human soul and to the great mystery itself, and it sets it loose to do whatever the system desires. Whatever the pattern of insanity we're embedded in needs in order to perpetuate itself, that's what's likely to happen with these fragments, with these tools, tricks, hacks, blueprints, Many purveyors of self-help give the impression that they understand a great deal, as if they do know our darkest secrets, even though they ignore this deepest, darkest, dirtiest secret that so many of us keep pushed down in the shadows of the soul. And as part of compassionate discernment, it's important for us to separate the purveyors of self-help as human beings from their function in the pattern of insanity because human beings are not our enemy. Ignorance is our only enemy. So it doesn't matter if a person's a billionaire or if there's some coach trying to make a living by teaching you mindset hacks. We're all just human beings. We're all susceptible to ignorance and fallibility. Human beings are not our enemy. We don't have to hate anybody because this is the mess we're in. And we don't have to blame it on anybody. Again, we can take responsibility in a holistic way. We can take responsibility from the perspective of wisdom, compassion, and grace. But that's different than what the self-help catastrophe is offering us as responsibility. We are all lived by powers we pretend to understand as human beings the purveyors of self-help may feel a sense of genuine concern for us and for the world. They may sincerely want to help us become the best versions of ourselves, and they may have some genuine sensitivity for our suffering and our struggles. But they are also lived by the massive currents of the dominant culture. They have not only an identity as human beings, but also they are participants in the culture, participants in the patterning of that culture. The self-help industrial complex and the larger pattern of insanity moves through them. Even if it's movements, if they could see them, if the purveyor of self-help could see what was happening, it might go against their better judgment as human beings. But they often cannot discern that. They know that they've been successful in their narrow domain. They can see it. They can point to their bank account or the bank account of their clients. They're not able to see the whole and not able to see how this is all headed toward catastrophe and how it's not really resolving our problems, not responding to the deep, dark secret of the soul. And if you consider any 
purveyor of self-help you can think of. Maybe the ones whose ads you've seen, maybe the ones whose books you've read or the programs you've purchased. If you look, you'll see this playbook is functioning. And we're not talking about the Dalai Lama or any legitimate figure within the wisdom traditions. We're talking about figures, great and small, who tell us how to solve our problems and succeed. And some of them have worked at universities. Some of them have advanced degrees. Others never went to college. Some of them do focus on what they refer to as spirituality, but they tend to do so in ways that present little to no challenge to the larger pattern of insanity. And so you get a lot of spiritual rationalizations of of the money system we have in that case. And many of them, I bet they're just such nice people to be around. Super great people. Many seem intelligent, creative, caring. And how wonderful would it be if all those fine qualities and all that passion and creativity went to work healing the community of life as a whole? If that was the primary job they did, that somehow their life energy was going directly into healing the world, directly into dialogues about restoring our ecologies, about ending inequality and injustice, about creating a better system. And because of their sincerity and their confidence, which often comes from real struggles in their lives, you know, that some of these people were not privileged, some of them had real struggle in their lives. And so because of that sincerity and confidence, and because they may have some really relevant knowledge and experience to what they're talking about, we want to believe them. And we can see that they have these nice intentions. And so it's just not easy to fully process the fact that not everybody who feeds the pattern of insanity does so with malintent. I I really think that that can be a hard thing to metabolize. And so our favorite purveyors of self-help might have an intention to positively change the world, and they may have fragments of wisdom that carry a certain degree of efficacy. But because they don't turn toward the deepest, darkest secret of our soul, the fact that our soul just does not want to play this game anymore, then they don't challenge the game itself and its fundamental structure, which is incoherent. And they play along with it. We're invested in it. The pattern of insanity goes against spiritual and ecological reality. It stands in fundamental contradiction to our own highest values. And that means it keeps us incoherent. The very presence of the gain makes us less happy, less at peace with ourselves and each other, less attuned to spiritual and ecological reality. And so the self-help industrial complex is dangerous. It's dangerous to us and to the conditions of life. Ironically enough, and maybe we could say tragically enough, there actually is a program that is called Zero to Dangerous. 
And that name captures the problem with unintended precision, and it falls right in the wheelhouse of a philosopher. It touches on why this podcast is called Dangerous Wisdom. We are rejecting the whole framework of the self-help catastrophe that tells us we can and should go from zero to dangerous on the basis of a set of hacks. And when we look at the marketing materials of this self-help program, we find the same basic moves of the self-help industrial complex. We really don't find any wisdom. I did, maybe, maybe it's there. You can let me know. Imagine if I said to you that I could take you from zero to Buddha, from zero to Socrates, zero to Jesus in just a few weeks. It sounds silly, and that means any program offering to take us from zero to wise enough to assert our agenda on the world is most definitely a program that takes us from zero to dangerous, but again, literally dangerous, dangerous to the conditions of life. And I think we need to understand, look into why that sort of marketing works on us, because they seem to be successful. They have enough money to run a lot of ads. And one thing that's interesting to think about is that if we can do something we feel competent at, we will feel, on one level, much better in our lives if we do that thing than if we try to pursue what we truly value but don't think we can accomplish. Isn't that interesting? Think about that. I may secretly value something. I may secretly long to pursue something that just feels right to me in the depths of my soul. But if I also doubt my capacity to succeed at that, then I will feel on balance worse. And the project will get caught up in delays, procrastination, laziness, failure, stress, anxiety, depression. That I will get caught up in those things. And so I would much rather do what feels accessible to me. It might not be what my highest values, what my soul calls me to do, but it's what I feel competent at. And so think of what that does to us. Think of what this means if deep in our soul we long for a better world. Not just more comfort for ourselves, not just more stuff, more money, more material stability, but a better world. Deep in our soul, we long to be of real help and service to others. We long for an end to injustice. We long for more quality time in nature and nurture. We long for more quality time with friends and loved ones. We long for an end to ecological degradation. We long to help heal the land and protect the community of life, all our relations. We long to trust and collaborate with each other. We long for meaning and purpose, and true peace, happiness, and freedom. Real freedom. Not the freedom to buy whatever I want, but real freedom as the wisdom traditions teach us. So we long for that. The soul longs for us. And then everything in the culture tells us we can't attain those things. We get message after message telling us in countless subtle and overt ways that all of this amounts to idealistic nonsense, communism, Stalinism, the death of democracy, utopian pie-in-the-sky daydreams. That's what we're told. 
about the soul's deep longing. For wisdom, love, beauty, peace, justice. Healthy ecologies, water we can drink. And we see how much power and aggression stands in the way of the soul's longing. We feel helpless and incapable of pursuing the soul's longing. And we just feel so much better if we give in and play along. If we do the jobs that we know we can do with competence and success, even if they feel meaningless at some level. At some level. Man, you might be really good at setting up websites. You know you can nail it. Does it really feel meaningful to work on somebody's search engine optimization? Understanding all of this puts our egocentric culture in a very different light. Especially when we look from the clear perspective offered by the wisdom traditions of the world. In the dominant culture, we only really allow, and in fact, we celebrate the person who says, I know. The person who says, I know what I'm doing. And we don't know how to properly recognize the limits of our ignorance. And sadly, now we've started to paste all kinds of other limited labels over that issue. Instead of just recognizing ignorance, now we want to call it patriarchy or white supremacy or whatever it might be. And that, in fact, shows us how the system co-ops what seems like a nice intention. We have this feeling that ignorance can express itself as what we call patriarchy. And we have the clear sense that certain people get marginalized in the dominant culture. And what does the system do in response to this? We think we're being clever or spiritual. But the system itself wants us to say, you have all the answers within you. Isn't that interesting? The self-help catastrophe, the coaching industry, therapy, a lot of the self-help industrial complex focuses on this notion that we each have all the answers within us. But what does that amount to in practice? In practice, what that does is it places the answers inside yet another ego. It does not create a genuine spiritual or philosophical revolution. Socrates and Buddha did not mean the same thing the self-help catastrophe means when it says you have all the answers within you. And that gets us to part of the challenge. Someone takes a fragment of wisdom and turns it into ignorance. Now, in an important sense, Buddha said, everything you truly need to know is within you. There's an important sense in which that's true. Socrates said the same thing in an important sense. But they meant it with a spiritual and philosophical depth and breadth that completely transcends the way that message comes across in the self-help industrial complex and in the dominant culture in general. The purveyors of self-help might say to us, well, I mean your higher self has the answers, not your ego. I'm talking about your higher self. 
But that makes no sense, because if we look at the self-help catastrophe, we find it totally bound up with the marketplace. And not merely bound up with the marketplace, but swimming at full strength in the same direction of the currents of that marketplace. And we all know, if we know anything about our higher self, I think we know it has no interest in this game. It may find the game amusing from some cosmic perspective, the way the gods find human folly amusing. But the soul has no real interest in self-branding, creating a customer avatar, posting to social media, or working on search engine optimization. Can you imagine Buddha sitting around saying, you know, we've really got to get in touch with our customer avatar here. Can you imagine Socrates or Jesus saying, we have a branding issue, I think. Picture Socrates telling Plato, you know, Plato, I think I just need better PR. That's why they want to kill me. They're executing me because of PR, not because I questioned everything they claimed to know, not because I challenged their egos, not because I challenged them precisely because they acted like they knew what they were doing and they didn't, not because I challenged them to face their own ignorance. No, I think it's a PR problem, and that's what you need to pay attention to, Plato. Take it from me. And really think about search engine optimization, Plato. Oh, they don't even have that yet, do they? Oh, well, don't worry. That means you won't be enlightened, Plato. But give it a few thousand years, maybe, I don't know, two, three thousand years, something like that, and then people can get an incomplete education and turn their desire to help the world into social media posts. I know you haven't heard of that, but it's coming. Self-published books. A job as a life coach. A job as a digital nomad who has no deep roots with the land and no deep connection with the wellsprings of wisdom. It's all coming, Plato. Now, this might sound like a harsh caricature, but we're trying to honor our own souls and the longing we feel to help the world, to attend to the sacred, to realize our fullest potential and purpose, and to enter into the wonder, mystery, magic, and inherent meaningfulness of our life and our world and the cosmos itself. We could call this the realization of our true self. Our true self has nothing to do with the pattern of insanity that has covered over our life and our world. But we get sucked into the pattern of insanity for a big variety of reasons. And one we just touched on, that we feel powerless to dispel the pattern of insanity, and we feel we can't act in fullest alignment with our soul and our sacred values. Self-help people love to talk about alignment. Rarely will they challenge the system. So alignment's fine if alignment means you can make money with the system we have. If alignment means you have to rebel against the system, you might want to find yourself a different self-help purveyor. And as we mentioned, the pattern of insanity convinces us all that only fools or evil communists want to challenge it, and so we just feel awful when we ask really hard questions. And people can treat us like the enemy. As we also try to acknowledge... We feel better when we go along with the pattern of insanity. And that's because the particular kind of insanity we've created has given us a situation that the wisdom traditions see as horrifying. That in our culture, we, we have a culture, we've made the world such a way that poverty buys us misery. Money still can't buy us happiness in the truest sense of the word, but poverty buys us so much misery. 
And money buffers us from so many headaches and heartaches that having money makes us feel comparatively wonderful. As for a more meaningful life, the self-help catastrophe promises that, even if it can't deliver the kind of meaning the soul hungers for. Worse yet, we've all gotten so deeply entangled and invested in the pattern of insanity that we can't even guess what the meaning of life would be like without it. I mentioned that before. We are invested. We don't know what it would mean to change, and we face a situation very much like physical dependence on a drug. That's what I'm getting at when I say we are invested deeply. It is one thing to quit alcohol if you just drink and don't have physical dependence. I mean, it could be wrecking your life, but you still might not be physically dependent. Now, if you have physical dependence and you try to quit cold turkey, it can kill you. You have to get weaned off. And William Burroughs put it very well with poetic license when he said that the difference between a junkie and an ordinary person is that a junkie metabolizes junk. That's what he wrote in Naked Lunch. They don't metabolize food. If you take junk long enough and you start to take enough of it, he said it changes your entire metabolism. And we need to think of that broadly. It's not only that we become less interested in an apple than we are in getting more heroin. That's true enough. But we also need to think of how it changes the way we metabolize our whole experience. The kinds of things we are willing to do the ways we look at the world and our relationships with other people, it changes our entire experience, the way we metabolize everything. And if we can begin to sense that, we can begin to understand the kind of shift that Burroughs is talking about and the kind of spiritual revolution that all the sages are talking about because the sages tell us we are physically dependent on our suffering and ignorance. It's like we're invested in it that deeply. We behave like someone physically dependent on our suffering and ignorance. And that suffering mindset, that conquest consciousness, has altered the way we metabolize our whole experience. That's what the sages want to tell us. And when we look at the present situation, we can recognize We can register that somehow or other we depend on the system we have to get from one day to the next. We depend on it. But that dependence does not mean the system is good. It means we sure are scared to get rid of it. Our dependence doesn't indicate a moral or ethical endorsement of the system. It just has to do with the fact that we have become physically dependent on something fundamentally toxic. And not just physically dependent, but psychologically dependent. That's even more important. The fact is that's both, and that makes it really a tough situation. It is not a good thing. We don't want to try to excuse the situation. We don't want to perpetuate our profound addiction to alcohol because quitting it could kill us. That's not the reason to keep taking alcohol. We've got to find a way to get off. It's not good enough if someone were to say, well, you know, it's not going to kill you to quit, but it might be really, really hard. You are going to go through a hell of a time. 
But that's not enough reason to keep taking the poison, especially if it's creating suffering for ourselves and others. The fact that it's going to be uncomfortable to quit, or maybe, for all we know, quitting the pattern of insanity might just feel like the best thing we've ever done. But maybe it'll be uncomfortable. If so, if it's going to be uncomfortable to quit this system, it does not make it wise, loving, or beautiful to stay with our current addiction. I think something recognizes that we are dependent, addicted, to the pattern of insanity, psychologically and physically. And we sense that it might feel, could feel, pretty awful to quit. Our dread for potential discomfort so often fails to match our actual experience. We put off the simplest things because we think it will suck to go through them. We put off our taxes because we think it's going to be such a hassle. We put off conversations because we think they'll feel so uncomfortable or going to create so much hostility. We stay in a relationship because of how awful we think the breakup will be. And we find out again and again and again that the things we kept trying to avoid weren't as bad as we imagined and that putting them off created far more suffering than confronting them would have. In any case, we can all understand why an addict should quit, even if the process will indeed feel like a kind of torture because we know they will come out the other side better able to truly know themselves. They'll learn about themselves going through that process. And then they'll come out in a much better place to know themselves even further. They'll be better able to realize their fullest potentials, better able to live in accord with spiritual and ecological realities. That's just the way it is. There's nothing more valuable than those things, and so the short-term suffering to get there pales in comparison. And there's a surprisingly simple solution to all of this. We can get together and start talking about how to walk away from all these games. We can start to listen to our souls and to the soul of the world, and help each other do that. If I sit next to you and tell you, I'm with you, listen to your soul, listen to the soul of the world, let's do this together, then that helps you do it, and you can do the same for me. We can start to take back our time and our sanity and let ourselves be nourished by the most incredible natural resource we have our interwovenness with each other and all things, our capacity for true friendship and love, and the wisdom traditions that teach us how to realize our fullest potentials beyond all the insanity. If you have questions, reflections, or stories to share, about this pattern of insanity, about the, the deep, dark secret of the soul, the secret of all our stress, strain, trauma, anxiety, depression, loneliness, imposter syndrome, and more. 
Please send them in through dangerouswisdom.org. We might be able to bring some of them into a future contemplation. Until then, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.